It's Tuesday, October 19th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Asit Sharma. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Greetings. Greetings. Uh, we've got uh, some big retail news to talk about. We're going to start with some earnings, and we'll go consumer products first. First quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected for Procter & Gamble. Shares are down a little bit. They were down a little bit this morning. They're, they've sort of evened out. Um, because profits were a little bit lower than a year ago, and also costs are going up, which I guess when you think about everything that Procter & Gamble makes and sells, nobody should really be all that surprised. I agree, Chris. That's really the big message here. Organic sales were up a nice 4%. Not bad for a consumer goods multinational conglomerate. Net sales of $20.3 billion, just marking how huge this company is. But transportation issues, supply chain issues, very similar to other companies as we've gone about these last few months. These were a little bit of a thorn in the side of Procter & Gamble for this earnings period. So, they took a hit on their gross margin. And as a result, the bottom line didn't flourish as much as it did in the prior year period. Now, if you're a shareholder, maybe you feel good about the company's operating cash flow, $4.6 billion for the quarter. And as is their habit, Procter & Gamble returned $5 billion bucks of cash to its shareholders, split between dividends and share repurchases. Now, I hate to sound so curmudgeon-y uh, on a Tuesday, Chris. <laughs> But I've had a long-standing beef with the way Procter & Gamble manages its balance sheet and its cash flow. They have a perennial working cap capital deficit uh, and always are adding on debt to the bottom line so that they can use all of operating cash flow plus a little bit more to return money to shareholders to pay those dividends and purchase repurchase shares, that is. You know, over the last 10 years, Procter & Gamble has returned 197%, that's on a total return basis, versus the S&P 500, which has returned almost 350% on a total return basis. This strategy hasn't worked for a long time. And I, my one wish for Procter & Gamble is that they would send less money home to shareholders and maybe focus a little bit more on some faster-growing areas of that big consumer goods space. Yeah, I know that Procter & Gamble gets name-checked now and then when people are thinking about sort of the what we consider to be the classic blue-chips dividend payers. Uh, but it, 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 to your point, it's, it's absolutely not at the top of that list in the way that I think Johnson & Johnson has been for at least a few years now. Um, I think that you go back a decade or so, I think they did a nice job of sort of paring back their overall portfolio. They say, you know, anyone listening right now, if we were to go through everyone's homes, it would take a little bit of time because we have dozens of listeners, but um, <laughs> everybody's got at least one Procter & Gamble product in their house, if not multiple. So, they did a nice job of sort of paring that back. But to your point, uh, they, they didn't it's almost like they didn't have a next move in terms of what they were doing with their products. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, I feel like it was something like 70 brands. So, please don't quote me here. But let's just put it this way. It was an enormous number of brands when you look at their entire portfolio. 
But that portfolio being so big, spread over multiple areas of the consumer goods industry, from healthcare to beauty to household goods, cleaning products, etc., it's just difficult at this size for Procter and Gamble to make meaningful change. And then, of course, as they might have been coming into some momentum, they uh, got a little bit of a temporary boost from COVID, and now are clawing back with the aftermath of COVID. So it's almost too as if. Uh, circumstances have prevented them from writing a very persuasive narrative for investors. But personally, I, I don't think much will change until they start to look very closely at how they're utilizing cash. It, it hasn't worked in all these years. Uh, they're so big, it, it really isn't a persuasive investment thesis, uh, to your point about the dividends. So we'll see. But all in all, look, not a bad quarter in terms of that top line growth in organic sales. So they do have that going for them. We'll check back in maybe next quarter. Yeah. And, and last thing I'll say is, you know, I do respect the fact that they did not change their full year guidance, that they basically said, yeah, costs are going up, but we can handle it. Yeah. You have to give them some credit. There and, and also the management team is pretty good at uh, being able to take adverse uh, changes within their supply. We're going to talk about another company that, that does this very well also in just a minute here, but they're able to react because they do have uh, very high quality manufacturing and have a firm grasp of all of their supply and, and supply chain. So that is to their credit, Chris. And uh, again, I didn't want to sound curmudgeon so that's a positive note to leave it on and we'll move to the next company. We'll move on. Third quarter profits and revenue were higher than expected for Bank of New York Mellon. Uh, they increased their fee income. You know, the, you were pointing this out because this is this is one of those bank stocks that does not leap to mind when I think about the big banks in New York City. It's done well. The stock has done well over the last 12 months, although even though it's up, I think, just north of 50% over the uh, last year, it is that is still solidly trailing the likes of B of A and Wells Fargo and others. That's true. The same for me, Chris. Uh, Bank of New York Mellon is not the first stock I think about when I'm looking at large capitalization banks, those leading brand names in the US. It is usually within the top 10 in terms of total assets. I think currently it's the ninth largest bank by its asset base. I like their business model because over the years they've relied less on just brute interest income, which is the bank's basic formula. That is, you know, to to earn more money on the the deposits they take in than they're paying in interest. And they've become more of a wealth management company, more of a fee-based company. So this quarter revenue was up five percent. A lot of that is coming from fees for different services. The, the other thing that catches my eye about Bank of New York Mellon is their investment in technology. They're starting to play more in the fintech space, but in a context that works for them. For example, this quarter, they talked up a collaboration with Verizon that will help them be the first company to send request for payment messages directly to consumers' bank accounts. So this is part and parcel of treasury management, but also this function is consumer facing. So these types of innovations, which don't try to turn uh, the company into some fintech upstart, but feel more natural, I like. And I'm, I was surprised, Chris. I, okay, so I've got 
one one quiz question for you today, and I don't expect you to be anywhere close on this because I was so way off of, of, of this. Do you know how much of assets Bank of New York Mellon has under management? Uh, no, and to guess yeah. would just be pure folly. Okay, so I guessed like in the hundreds of billions. I was way off. They have $2.3 trillion of assets under management. So that shows us there that there's this very appreciable asset base that they can earn fee revenue uh, off of, whether it's private management, wealth management services, what have you. I I like this revenue diversification that they've got. For For a big bank, it's what you want just short of getting into those trading activities investment banking activities, which make up so much of one quarter's returns for some bigger banks like JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs. Well, and you know, and you touched on this, they they kind of need to try something new. I mean, they're, they're, you, when you look at them just in terms of their size and what they do, they're, it's almost like they're stuck in the middle. You know, they're, they're not, uh, you know, we, we were talking recently about um, J.P. Morgan Chase, which is the biggest of the big banks, um, but even compared to the likes of Bank of America, Wells Fargo, City, and others, you know, Bank of New York Mellon is, uh, you know, the the little kid brother, <laughs> um, and yet <laughs> the middle child, <laughs> and yet it's not like it is this dynamic upstart business. Um, it's not like they're doing. Uh, it's not even like they are a smaller community bank, um, and you know, with maybe some of the potential upside of a of a business like that. So, um, hopefully, they keep trying to innovate because if they're just trying to play the exact same game as uh, their bigger competitors, it's not to say that they're going to go away. It is to say that they're just going to continue to sort of lag the field. Yeah, so much of this is coming down to nomenclature as it's grown to to be this big but still middle size. Sort of like what happened with Prince when he changed his brand to the artist formerly known as Prince. This is the bank formerly known as one of the largest of the regional banks. But to your point, it's become so big, you really can't think of it as, as a regional bank anymore. At least I can't. Nor can I put it in the same breath as those huge houses which have multiple types of trading activities. It is something of now this big animal which manages assets, works up that fee component, and is trying to invest in technology. So yeah, you know, I agree with you there. They've got to do something different. They have to innovate. I see signs of that, but uh, trailing their peers in a I mean it's been a it's such a great environment for banks just looking this morning. Dow Jones U.S. Banks Index is up 40% this year. These are banks. Uh, you know, of course, coming off a, a very volatile 2020, which is a hard year for banks, but it's trailing that index. Its stock is up 35%. Uh, so, so you're right there. That, that that innovation and investment still has a payoff down the road, but middle is is a difficult place to be. Well, and again, to end on a positive note, I'm pretty sure you just compared Bank of New York Mellon to Prince, which is about as nice a compliment as they're going to get all week. Absolutely. Over the long term, you you want it to be compared to Prince, not the artist formerly known as Prince. Shares of Walmart up after Goldman Sachs added the stock to its conviction buy list. 
Um, I, I think I mentioned this recently. When I when I see upgrades like this, I my thought is always the same, which is I don't care that it happened. I want to know why it happened. And in the case of why Goldman Sachs added Walmart to its conviction buy list, it's built around earnings growth, which is not a phrase investors traditionally associate with a business like Walmart. But it's uh, you know it, it, the reasoning appears to be sound. So. We're used to thinking of Walmart as a slower growth proposition, so we certainly don't think of Walmart in terms of sales growth. But the earnings growth, you can be convinced by. If anything, I think the past two years have illustrated for us that those really huge retailers like Walmart, especially Target, I would say, Costco, that have huge balance sheets and have spent years investing not just in supply chains, but their own internal technology, they're best equipped to weather any kind of storm. They can be opportunistic in difficult times, and they retain the ability to, to grow and compound those earnings when things return to normal. Walmart has shown a lot of evidence of this. You know, it's been so competitive with Amazon.com over the last, I would say, five to seven years in trying to figure out how to do e-commerce. But they couldn't have achieved that without the, the big balance sheet that they have. So when you start to think about why such a big mammoth company would get on a conviction list for earnings growth, to me, it means these earnings are predictable. I mean, this is the way that I look at Walmart. If, if anybody has the ability in retail to improve earnings for the next five years, it's going to be Walmart. It's going to be Target because they were able to make investments. They weren't stretched for dollars as they grew they grew decades ago. But this slower growth period is is sort of impressive. Just to remind listeners, Chris, I believe it was the two of us talking about Walmart in um, their Q2 report for this year. Their comparable transactions grew 14.5% on a two-year stack. So comparing comp sales not to last year, which is we should we should take that with a grain of salt, but the year before the 2019 year. So there's they're still also capable of top line growth, which in turn can boost margins and profits if you can hold your cost structure steady. And there have been times in the past where any number of analysts have come out and made the case for buying Walmart. And a lot of times, a big part of that case was the stock had been beaten down. Shares of Walmart today are trading, I think, five or six percent below its all-time high. So it, it's one more nice reminder that just because a stock is at or near its all-time high, it doesn't mean it's a bad time to buy. Very much so, and this is almost the uh, Costcoization of Walmart in terms of investors' eyes. I think Costco has enjoyed enjoyed a lot of confidence from investors over the years because it's got that locked in annualized uh, sort of recurring revenue from its fee membership. They do everything else right to bring the business in. So Costco is, has never been quite a stock where lots of analysts will pile in on a bad earnings report and say, oh, it's beaten down by it now. In all kinds of weathers, I think Costco is recommended, and they perform year after year. Walmart's starting to look a lot more like that, although they don't have that locked-in component. What they do have is customer loyalty across a lot of 
different um, economic strata that we look at. And that's impressive to me how much of a, a wide base of customers they've been able to retain over the years. So, yeah, I mean, this is something, don't don't let it sleep on you. If you're looking for a little bit of ballast in your portfolio, I say, why not to some of these big names? Uh, real quick before we wrap up, two quick things. Uh, first, happy b- birthday to my sister. Um, uh, yes, uh, she shares a birthday with um, the awful day in 1987 for investors where the stock market <laughs> fell 22% in a single day. 22%. So you never forget her birthday. Happy birthday, by the way, to your sister. <laughs> I like to think I remembered her birthday well before 87, but you know, I was a kid then. Maybe I didn't do such a good job. Um, uh, and again, uh, drop us an email, marketfoolery at fool.com. Uh, we are planning an apropos of nothing episode. So if you have suggested topics for that, Shoot him to marketfoolery at fool.com. Asad Sharma, great talking to you as always. Thanks for being here. So much fun, Chris. I appreciate it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.